folks, this is Nancy Fry. Usually I'm behind the mic slash computer instead of in front, but before I hand the microphone over to Gordon, I just want to take a moment to give a shout out to the new home of the History Files, the PsyCon Podcast Network. The Bad Cat Show's blog and History Files YouTube channel are not going away, but we encourage you to go to PsyCon.net to download or stream, access show notes, and leave comments. While you're there, you can browse the other shows in this big geeky podcast network. PsyCon is spelled C-S-I-C-O-N, and we have shows for everybody. There's daily tech and science news on Geek Days, the latest gaming news on MMO's Skateers, true stories from around the world and across time on Coffee with Jeff, in-depth film discussion with Movieing On, and lots more. We're excited to be a part of this growing network and encourage you to pay a visit. Now, back to our regularly scheduled broadcast. Welcome to the History Files. It's April 12th, 2015, and this is Episode 9. Today, I'm joined yet again by Dylan Honnold. Howdy. So, let's break straight into the news. In the news today, we're going to talk a little bit about Crimea, or the Crimea. Uh, due to sanctions against Russia, uh, Blizzard and games hosted by Battle.net, or Battle.net rather, uh, are now blocking Diablo and World of Warcraft to users in Crimea. Uh, likewise, Google, Apple, PayPal, and Valve have also suspended service there. Um, this is not huge, overpowering news to me. It's like, well, okay, they're, they have basically a, a lightweight blockade going on Russia for, uh, what's going on in Ukraine and the fact that you, uh, Ukraine had had Crimea for a while, Russians took it back. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Crimea. I don't know if people have a clue as to where it is. It's dead center of the Black Sea. Well, kind of sort of dead center of the Black Sea. It's, uh, you know, that's that place south of Russia and east of, like, Greece and the uh, the Balkans, north of Persia. <laughs> it's, uh, and Turkey. It, anyway. So, I did a little looking up of what the Crimea or Crimea is. Originally, it was Taurus. Uh, it was settled by Greeks somewhere around the 5th century BC. And of interest there is that the area of the Ukraine, present-day Ukraine, has been the breadbasket of the Balkans, and Greece, and a lot of parts of the Mediterranean since way, 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 way back. Part of the reason for the uh, the Trojan Wars was over 
trade with the Black Sea because Troy controlled the entrance to the um, uh, to the Straits of uh, uh, that lie between Asia Minor and Europe, the uh, um, and control of the Dardanelles. Uh, the um, it was the area was conquered by the Mongols in 1238, and it became the Khanate of Crimea, which was in turn conquered by Catherine the Great's Russians in 1784. That's about the time that the Treaty of Paris established the United States as an independent country. So the Russians had Crimea for a fairly long time. Uh, in 1854, it was the site of a little dust-up between the French, British, and Turks on one side and the Russians on the other side over Russian incursions into Turkish territory in what's now Bulgaria. Um, and, of course, the Germans tried to take it from Russia. The, they, there have been various sieges of Sevastopol, uh, they tried to take it in World War II. So the Russians tend to think of it as their territory. Even though Khrushchev gave it away to Ukraine when they were all part of the Soviet Union in like the 1950s. The, um, the Russians have a major naval base in Crimea. Uh, it's the home of the Black Sea's fleet. And even after the breakup of the Soviet Union, the Russians kept that base at Sevastopol. And then when Ukraine started breaking away from Russian influence within the last few years, the Russians seem to have decided, no, Crimea is important to us strategically. We're keeping it or taking it back. And who engineered it? Hard to say. Obviously, the Russians had a major hand in it. But Crimea declared its independence from Ukraine and through a plebiscite, an election, decided to join Russia, which Russia acceded to. Now, not many other people in the world say that was legitimate, but the Chinese do. <laughs> okay. Uh, a lot of the Europeans are saying, well, that's not legitimate. And, of course, the United States says it's not legitimate. But that's what a lot of this dust-up is from. I did read that in 2006, the Ukrainians tried to host uh, NATO at one of their bases in Crimea, and the local ethnic Russians protested against it heavily. You know, NATO, go home. So some American Marines who landed there had to pack up and go home. Anyway, this has obviously been a a, an area of contention for a long time. And so it still is. We'll see, we'll see where things go. History lives again. Our main topic today is going to be on the rise, decline, and fall of empires. I'm basing a lot of what we're going to be talking about on a book written by Sir John Glubb published in 1978, called The Fate of Empires. Sir John was a fascinating uh, individual in and of himself. He was the head of uh, Glubb's Arab Legion during World War II. He was a decorated 
war hero in World War One. Went to the trenches when he was like 17 years old as a second lieutenant in the British Army. But he also had a distinguished civil career in Iraq in the 1930s. Uh, he was uh, quite a scholar of Arab Arabic history. Uh, fascinating guy. Anyway, the essay is Fate of Empires, as, again, first published in 1978. He presents it not as a theory, but as a thesis that should be explored. Uh, one of the main points he makes is that we don't learn from history. Uh, the studies tend to be brief and prejudiced and, what did you call it? I biased. Biased, absolutely. Um, we only want to hear about the good stuff, that, that where we, we in our glorious, you know, heroics have overcome the savages uh, of whatever ethnicity or viewpoints or whatever they happen to be. Um <clears throat> But we don't look at the broad sweep of history very often. And he points out that in his brief study of the broad sweep of history and civilizations, that over the last 3,000 years, there seemed to be a rise and fall of empires that lasts about 250 years, give or take. Uh, just as a and he doesn't even necessarily call it an empire, but an age of national greatness. Uh, he also points out that that's about 10 generations. If you figure a generation is approximately 25 years, it might be 20 years, it might be 30, depending, but it's approximately 25 years, so 10 generations. And he, he compares it to a lifespan, where... Everybody goes through various stages as they grow up, or adults, and then grow old. Uh, and anyway, it, it, it's just an absolutely fascinating concept of how he uh, points out the different levels, the different eras of of uh, this the evolution, the lifespan of these empires, and it doesn't seem to matter what political system or ethnicity or anything. They all follow the same track. Um, he also asks why this might be. It, and he looks at it from a more uh, religious point of view in that, you know, perhaps God wants it this way, but you could also look at it very much of a Darwinian view that each group, each, as he calls them, races in the old sense, like Sir Winston Churchill saying, our island race, meaning the British people, that each race has peculiar and particular uh, strengths, different from everybody else's. And this is a way to spread them so that everybody gets some of these strengths. For example, and these are mine, not his, the Romans spread engineering and theory of law the English spread the concept of democracy. doesn't necessarily mean they spread democracy, but they spread the idea of it throughout their empires. So there are definitely some pros to this. Um, when you have an empire, you have major advantages to commerce, like uh, Pax Romana. The Romans made the Mediterranean a, a Roman lake, and piracy was totally suppressed. 
you didn't really have to worry if you wanted to take a boat from from Spain to the Levant you could do it with no problem whereas hundreds of years either way there's no way you could do that it's been said that a virgin with a bag of gold could walk from from one end of the Roman Empire to the other without being molested uh, and considering the Roman Empire went from Hadrian's Wall in Britain in north north of England to what's now uh, eastern Syria that's like 2,700 miles. That's a fair distance to uh, to walk, <laughs> carrying a bag of gold. Uh, so Pax Romana definitely helped commerce enormously, but so did the Mongol Empire. The Mongols were not nice people. I don't think the Romans were either, but both of them instituted... They were efficient. They were Yes, <laughs> they were efficient. People who did things they didn't like didn't last long. So, um, but also Pax Britannica, with the freedom of the seas, the uh, the Royal Navy kept the sea lanes open from uh, from Waterloo in 1815 until the outbreak of World War One in 1914, and now Pax Americana does the same thing. You don't hear a whole lot about pirates, a little bit off the Horn of Africa and little bit in the Straits of Malacca, but not much. It's not like the, the the sea lanes are crowded with pirates because they tend to get, if not hanged, they certainly get shot up and captured. Beating. Furthermore, it aids in the spread of cultures, uh, products and ideas. For example, uh, the Greeks spread their language and their culture throughout the Mediterranean during the uh, the Alexander uh, empire, Alexandrian Empire. The Arabs certainly spread religion throughout their empire. The Spaniards, uh, they took the uh, their American Empire where the, with the Colombian exchange of like potatoes and tomatoes and corn, uh, all these amazing products from the New World went to the Old World and products from the Old World to the New World uh, which at least in the beginning was facilitated by Spain. So I have a list that Sir John made up, or put together, I should say. He didn't make it up out of whole cloth. He put it together. Uh, nation dates of rise and fall and their duration in years. So I'm, I'm not going to give you all the dates, but I'll give you the duration. Uh, he starts off with the Assyrian Empire, which lasted for 247 years. He goes on to Persia, which was 208 years, uh, Cyrus and his descendants. Uh, you have the Greek Empire of Alexander and his successors, 231 years. The Roman Republic, 233. He also then splits the Roman expansion period in two with a separate 207 years for the Roman Empire, which lasted from uh, Augustus Take, becoming the uh, uh, the first citizen to the death of Marcus Aurelius. And the Arab Empire, which was 246 years. The Mamluk Empire of Egypt and Syria, uh, 267 years. Ottoman Empire, 250 years. The Spanish Empire, 250 years. I throw in the, the Tokugawa, Japan, 
Empire, 256 years, Romanov Russia, 234, and Britain, 250. Some of these are very, very arbitrary dates. Some of them, on the other hand, are extremely accurate. The Mamluk Empire, for example, really did start in 1250 and did end in 1517. So there's a few that are absolutely, you know, um, have an absolute rise and fall. Also, though, some nascent empires are cut short. The empire of Nebuchadnezzar was only 72 years long. The Soviet Union lasted 75 years. So, um, some, just like some lives are cut short, some empires are cut short. So we can use uh, Sir John's description of these things as, as a, a, a reference point, as a frame of analysis. Like so many social sciences, it, it doesn't have to be exact, but it can create a pattern, it can create a, a perspective for comparisons and those kinds of things. Exactly. Yeah, I like your term, lens of analysis. It's uh, it's a very good starting point, and to see where things you can start guessing, making educated guesses uh, as to where things are, where things are going, based on what has been. And unfortunately, this isn't something that's been explored a lot, and so we tend to because court historians teach pre-biased histories which teach nothing we only teach the good stuff the stuff that makes us look good or the bad stuff about our enemies which makes them look bad well how can you learn from that if you're not looking at a broader view and and I would imagine too that um, uh, make some assumptions about his model and I'll, I'll, I'll choose that for for me model is good yeah model um it doesn't bode well for us right now because we're at plus or minus the 250 year mark correct now that's one thing that's interesting how how will we judge the american empire and people who dispute that we have an empire need to look things up a little closer because we do have an empire and we have had an empire because we're a very expansive culture. And we should visit episodes two and three of the history files, I think it was, yes. regarding Cuba, Hawaii, <laughs> the Philippines, Philippines. And, and et cetera. But even before that, we it, it, the United States is interesting because it's almost like we calved off from the British Empire. Uh, fought them a little bit and then came back together in World War One, World War Two, and sort of reformed an empire. Uh, but the expansion of certainly from seventeen, you could say seventeen seventy six. You might be able to say seventeen eighty four with the advent of the um, United States actually having its independence, or you can go to eighteen o three when we bought Louisiana from France. Which, of course, the locals who lived there didn't have much say in it, but we decided we owned it. Anywhere in there gives us 
a little bit more than 200 years, 210 to 240 years of existence as an empire. If your average age is somewhere around 250 years, plus or minus, well, just purely on that timeline, as Sir John points out, your average age for a person is life to expect is around 70. Some live into their 90s. Some die in their, as babies. But a person who lives into their 20s can probably expect to make it to 70. So we can expect that somewhere within the next 25, 50 years, or five years, uh, we will have some issues to deal with. Um, he also gives uh, stages of the rise and fall of great nations, which seem to be the age of pioneers, or this outburst where people who had been rather um, paltry all of a sudden come out of nowhere and become this great, important imperium. Uh, the Aztecs are an excellent example of that. They were sort of shunted off into the corners of uh, the lakes in the Valley of Mexico, yet built themselves up into becoming, within a few generations, this massive empire that controlled all of central Mexico. Um, not with, and I don't want to bias our conversation, and we've got international listeners um, that are uh, being exposed to this conversation, um, and I don't want to make it e- egocentric uh, for us, but how would you, what time periods would you say for the United States as we go through the age of the pioneers, etc.? Just so we have a, a, a framework for, let's say, my experience. What times in history would you say is the age of pioneers in the U.S.? And then we're going to get into the age of conquest, commerce, etc. Throw out, if you would, the dates or rough time that the that you the U.S. would fit in okay. to Sir John's model. Okay, th- that's good. Uh, I think. Age of Conquest and Pioneers together, you could put from, let's say, 1784, thereabouts, to around 1850, because that's when we bought Louisiana, we sort of bought uh, Florida, we uh, uh, annexed Texas, which had become independent from Mexico by their own force of arms. We negotiated for the Oregon Territory with Great Britain, and we flat out conquered uh, northern Mexico from Mexico in the Mexican-American War, which ended in 1848. And this, you know, of course, led to the gold rush and a lot of westward expansion. So somewhere in there, not that we didn't keep conquering, but virtually everybody can all the historians call the 1870s through 1900, 1914 as the uh, the Gilded Age. So I would, the the term conquest has very militaristic, violent um, overtones or undertones. Conquest doesn't necessarily mean force at arms, as you said, negotiated for possession of. Correct. So broadening that term right. a little bit. 
Right. We we did negotiate with Spain for Florida, even though there was a threat, an, <laughs> none too subtle threat that we'd take it if they didn't. Um, and there was a negotiation with Britain, not that we, well, there was an none too subtle threat of 54, 40 or fight, which happened to be the southern boundary of Russian Alaska, but in general, yeah, we can say we negotiated for the, well, and for Alaska too, we negotiated with Russia for Alaska. Uh, so that could be, I guess, the, the last huge expansion of territory. But then we have the lesser expansions that gave us a huge reach internationally, which we talked about a few episodes ago about our taking of Hawaii, Samoa, um, Guam, and the Philippines, which certainly, <laughs> that comes under age of conquest. But it, sure. And it's, and it's not all dirt, but there's a lot of water and a lot of expanse that goes along there, goes right. along with it. The sh shipping lanes. If you've got the dirt, you've got control of the shipping lanes around it. You bet. Exactly. Um, so there's, this ex there's also an ex enthusiastic expansion in everything. And this is the time where Britain and the United States both, because they're still in their... Uh, their empire, imperial period. Um, this is the the industrial revolution, and Americans were renowned in the during the nineteenth century as being absolute innovators in everything, everything. Uh, innovators not only in exploration of the you know North America, but in manufacturing techniques um, and uh, you know design of things but also in medicine because the use of nitrous oxide or laughing gas uh, and ether, which basically invented anesthesia, came from experiments done in, United, in the United States. So there's this enthusiastic expansion going on uh, that Americans were a vital, important part of. Then we move on to the age of commerce and Coca-Cola colonialism comes to mind. What was it you also mentioned? McDonald's. McDonald's. Yes. Um, McDonald's and Coca-Cola, those are, you know, great examples of, of our commercial enterprise that has colonized the world. You'd be hard-pressed to find a place that doesn't recognize... Though one of those two or both of those two uh, mark trademarks, their their marketing, the big M and the C, right, um, and also KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, you see that with Arabic, you know, <laughs> and if somebody decides they don't like the United States, they go burn down the McDonald's or Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> like doesn't do anything to us, but oh well. Uh, it's, but it's a symbol it's a of symbolism. American commercial expansionism, commercial colonialism. Okay. So with this this age of commerce, the the prior prior eras of pioneers and outburst and conquests have led to this stimulation of commerce, because they've flattened everything else, but they also have made like a Pax Romana where it you can walk from one end to the other. Um, 
from that, from this extraordinary expansion of commercial enterprise, comes an age of affluence. And with this age of affluence, people start thinking, hmm, money. Well, that's a neat thing. Uh, that's a whole lot more long-term and fun than military glory because we tend to, you know, live hard and die young. Um, I can die in my bed with the riches and family surrounding me. What time period in the in U.S. history would you as, assign to a affluence? Well, if, again, I would say overlapping stuff of, of commerce and affluence starting with the, the Gilded Age in the 1870s and rolling on, even though we've had some ups and downs in there, uh, I guess the age of affluence actually we would really be actually post-war, post-World War II when you get right down to it. You could say the age of commerce up through World War II and age of affluence post-World War II because... Um, that's when we owned the world. Yeah, and I, I've got that vision of everybody owned a house or built a house, the suburbs, the... The Levitt town, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and... Social programs kicking in where there was income from the public sector that could help mm -hmm. those that weren't actually... Or protect, maybe, is a better mm -hmm. word, the secure, social security net. Mm -hmm. Um and also all our enemies and all, not even enemies our our commercial rivals were down the british the french the germans the japanese the russians everybody with any kind of manufacturing capability uh was rubble yeah got flattened <laughs> they were flattened and so we named our prices and and therefore blue collar workers who had traditionally been renters all of a sudden could afford their own house and two cars in every garage. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that, I guess age of, of influence for the United States would be that post-war period. Okay. Then we get into the age of intellect. One of the things that Glub points out is that even in places like uh, Baghdad, Imperial Baghdad, the center of the Arab Empire in the 9th century... Universities were popping up all over, whereas the whole place had like two uh, in, you know, their earlier periods. Um, towards the end, there was like one growing a university in almost every little town. And it seems like people start looking, you know, they have money, they have leisure time. And so intellectual, intellectual pursuits become important. You're no longer out bashing people in the head in order to get ahead, of, <laughs> as it were. And you're no longer having to go out and struggle 12 hours a day to make money. You can start thinking about, oh, cool stuff like science and literature, which, of course, the Arabs excelled in at that period. Oh, my God, that's where astronomy and geometry and all these things, algebra, <laughs> wild stuff like that uh, came from. <clears throat> And then you get the age of decadence. Actually, let me just back up a little bit. The age of intellect in our in the, the United States, our 
formative years, formative generations, we had like the Ivy League and that was it. That those were the only universities and they you had to be absolute top drawer certainly 10%, top 10%, if not top 1% to attend. Intellectually as well as income connect the whole it was a resource intensive activity. Absolutely. Okay. And when Theodore Roosevelt, putting together his Rough Riders, talked about having college men, that was a rare bird. Not many people went to college. Post-World War II, with the GI Bill, all these, it's Age of Influence, but also all these returning GIs could go get an education if they so felt. Therefore, universities popped up everywhere. The university my parents went to, University of the Pacific, it actually, it had started in 1851. But it was one of the very few in California. There was the University of California in Berkeley. There was San Jose State and Stanford. And this one, University of the Pacific. And that's about all you had in Northern California. Oh, Santa Clara. Anyway, that was it for the northern half of the state. Now, <laughs> every college, every town has a... Community uh, college, com- if nothing else. Exactly. I notice I keep saying age of influence. It's age of affluence. So my apologies there. Jeez. Next on the line, we're talking about age of intellect, is that it seems as though intellect also includes a broadening of of opportunities for people who had otherwise been excluded, uh, such as uh, even the Arab historians note that women, for the first time, were brought into public life as lawyers and judges, preachers, professors, all sorts of things that had traditionally been very masculine. In fact, that seems to be another hallmark of this age of expansion and conquest and commerce is it's very hyper-masculine. When you get into affluence and intellect, women have a greater say in what's going on, at least in general. People, again, who had been otherwise marginalized are now brought in to the... Mainstream? To the mainstream, yes. That's a, yeah. yeah, mainstreamed. And and this isn't about causality. Correct. Right? This is about um, observations that there's a cyclic nature to empire and that women are not causing the decline. Minorities are not causing the decline. It's it's these are are hallmarks of us of the cyclic nature. So this is some of the treading lightly in terms of there's no causality here. It's looking at the lessons. Correct. It's like wrinkles and sore joints don't make you old. Being old means you get wrinkles and sore joints. Right. <laughs> this is just a part and parcel that Sir John Glubb noticed in his study. Is that, wow, it's just like when you're, you know, when you turn 20, 
you can do anything you want. But when you're 60, not so much. Not so much. Yeah. Different things happen, but you can think better when you're 60 than you can when you're 20. Because you can't do anything else but think. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I'll let you know. Okay. (laughs) So finally, we get into the age of decadence. And Glub defines decadence as being marked by defensiveness, which means instead of expanding and attacking your opponents, you set up big walls and try to keep him out. Pessimism. People just like, oh, things are just not going to work out. You're no longer full of the joyous optimism that the age of pioneers or the conquerors or the commercial people had. Materialism. I want that. Uh, There's a lot of, you know, when you have affluence, you buy stuff. When you buy stuff, you like it. Other people want it too. And so you become, rather than um, being happy with, like, let's say the, the desert arts of that the Arabs had for for centuries pursued of poetry and um, and song all of a sudden they're getting into you know uh, um, sculpture and architecture things and things yeah things a desert people uh, a people on the rise they don't have time for things they don't have time for portable wealth like that their their idea of wealth is i have five chickens or i have 10 cows that's their idea of wealth eight generations later 10 generations later i have to have a mansion full of you know ipods mm-hmm. the the trappings of um wealth or con- the conveyance of having stuff. Exactly. Being victimized by consumerism and marketing. Yeah. Yeah. Frivolity is another hallmark. And he points out, again, using Baghdad as a good example because he studied Arabic history very closely. Um... <laughs> Lute players, basically guitarists and singers, became the heroes rather than the military heroes of several generations before. Or even intellectuals. But it was actors. So Kim Kardashian would have been a lute player as opposed to what she is now, which I'm not quite sure. (laughs) So (laughs) she's not even a lute player. She doesn't do anything. She's the poster child for frivolity. Absolutely. And actually kind of materialism because she's a manufactured product. Yeah, and and, and what does she make? What does she... she, Photographs. Yeah. That's what she does. That's what she is. And headlines and Kim Kardashian's, et cetera, et cetera. So for Sir John... Um, in, in ter- the frivolity, w- when you start creating something out of literally nothing, and and not worshiping, but but being so uh, consumed by it, mm-hmm. 
decline. That's 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 a hallmark of decline. The late Romans who adored gladiators. Same thing. What did these guys do other than go kill people and animals and stuff in the Colosseum? They did. They didn't produce anything. They didn't conquer anything. They just entertained. So that's frivolity. Television, <laughs> absolute frivolity. Even to a large extent, movies and whatnot. <clears throat> then we move on to an influx of foreigners. One of the things he mentions during the earlier parts of a nation's rise, an empire's rise, is with the age of commerce and affluence, people flock to the imperial capital from everywhere to the point that you have, whereas generations before, all you ran into were people of that conquering nation. After a while, you can't find any. And so, you know, what they're all at work or whatever. It's people want to make money. They, there's money to be made off of the leavings from the table of these conquerors. Then later you also get either their their relatives or neighbors or whatever who say, I want some of that. Those guys have everything that I don't. Whether it's the Romans having to deal with invasions of Germans in the latter part of their empire. And the, the Germans didn't want to go conquer the Romans. They wanted to be Romans. The British colonials moving into Britain uh, at the tail end and continuing uh, of their empire. And the United States with massive immigration all its career, but also of late, uh, a lot of Latinos moving in. The Latinos aren't coming in because they want to be Americans necessarily, but they want that prosperity and again, as you said before, this doesn't make a decline. This is a an effect of decline. Cause, and that's a that's a again a really big important thing here. Right, it, cause it, and effect is opposite of what you probably think. Yeah, and and that's not the intent. It, it's just here are hallmarks of a, a position in the cycle. Right, your failing empire. eyesight. As yes. you get older, yeah. or whatever, you're, it's just, this is just what happens. And you can look at your grandparents and what happened to them and how they, you know, grew up and aged and died. And you can say, oh, well, that's probably what's going to happen to me, too. Yeah. You know, thought popped in. The mythology of the United States is. We are a nation of immigrants, and we welcome your tired, your poor, your hungry, and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Had Glub's model been present when that idea was created, did our mythology, or or could it be said that our mythology, open having open doors, facilitated? Um, uh, made it more likely. Is there any connection? And maybe that's even something yeah. for another, I, I don't know, episode, but it's just interesting. We are built on the idea of come here. True, but look at the Romans 
and they expanded what it meant to be Roman. We expanded what it meant to be American. With, let's say, the, the, the Irish coming in, at, and one of the reasons for the, there being a problem with the Irish immigration in the 1840s was we hadn't had any massive immigration since the American Revolution. But we turned them into Americans, just like the, um, the Italians and the Poles and you know every other group that came in just like the Romans expanded citizenship to conquer territories, we expanded citizenship to other than white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. You didn't have to be any of the above. Well, you generally had to be white. But you could be non-Anglo, non-Protestant. And so the influx of foreigners with the idea of foreigners coming here to to enjoy what the country has to offer rather than becoming country people. Exactly. Yes, yes. Because the Romans, the, or pardon me, the Germans who came in, eventually they wanted to stay Germans. They, they wanted what the Romans had. They didn't necessarily want to learn Roman, learn Latin. Um, and uh, Hispanics moving into the United States are perfectly happy with their culture. Why would I want to change my culture? They're perfectly happy with it. It works for them. So they just they want the prosperity. They don't want to buy into all of the other aspects. Another, <clears throat> this is great, another aspect that he points out, the welfare state. You mentioned this as part of, of affluence and intellect, but it's also part of decline because, you know, <laughs> bread and circuses, frivolity and welfare state. That's what it is. Uh, all of these empires seem to go through that because that's how you buy votes. That's how you buy support from people who otherwise are not, they don't have the same vim and vigor that they did when they were in their youth or that your country had when it was in its youth. And so you're constantly having to put in more and more resources to keep up the effect. It's just like like 80 or 90% of medical costs are in a person's last six months of their life or something like that, some, something ridiculous. Yeah. Um, certainly the last few years. Mm -hmm. Well, you don't need to put a lot of medical attention on a 20-year-old. But 80-year-old takes a lot. Sure. And so there's more and more resources being put into keeping up appearances, if you will, in an empire. And finally, a weakening of religion. Again, not a cause of decline, a result of decline. And this seems to be noted by virtually everybody in a declining empire. Nobody goes to church. Nobody goes to temple. Nobody listens to the mullahs. Um, it's, you know, our old gods have 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 you know left us and they're ignoring us um, so unless an empire is cut off in its prime these things all seem to to be you know um, to make their appearance now he mentions that decadence is due to too long a period of wealth and power selfishness in other words 
you can think of the the old classical Roman who it's duty honor country gee like West Point used to teach <laughs> duty honor country that comes before your own selfish desires for commercial wealth <laughs> which kind of brings the next one love of money selfishness love of money <laughs> which bring a period of wealth and power and the loss of sense of duty because people again I've got money I've got mine oh let's hire mercenaries to do our dirty work let's hire the Germans to be the legionnaires now instead of making landholders do it uh, instead of a draft we'll have our all-volunteer army so that the sons of people who were not important to us in the imperial capital get killed right so fortunate son yeah yes so entropy also seems to be a part of this tendency of the within the decadent period people start fighting amongst themselves viciously vicious political fights um he points out that with the fall of byzantium uh, in uh, was it 1452 or is it three anyway 1450s to the Turks even then here's the Turks knocking down the walls of Constantinople with their art, heavy artillery and the political parties can't agree on anything does that sound like Congress <laughs> yes Th that there, the distraction of infighting is blinding to real-world problems or real-world issues. Exactly. Um, the, the general populace being focused on the trappings of non-producers glorifying... Pers personality right rather than dealing with thinking about talking about substantive issues and of course my substantive issues may be different from yours yes. or people in whole but solutions try right. something and it, and it doesn't seem to be personal because you can take an individual from that and put them into a rising you know a rising empire and they do just fine yeah there's something about the the air of a declining empire that brings this on uh you know you get the life histories of these all these great states all follow the same script um you know they they fall for different reasons sometimes they're they just collapse on their own sometimes they're snuffed out by another rising empire um but they all go it's just like every human being they die of something different but they die everybody's everybody who's born gets to die and it just depends on where along that arc you mm -hmm. fall, but everybody who lives any length of time goes through that arc. And there's a decline. Absolutely, there's a decline. You get older, 
and you become defensive. You're no longer aggressive. You're more defensively oriented. And it, it is, it's it's a fascinating thesis. Now, one of the things we talked about, too, is that history tends to be written by the victors, of course. Um, but the the defeated learn more than the victors do. The victors learn the lessons they want to learn because they have the, shall we say, the, the affluence to do so. They have, uh, the losers learn lessons they're forced to learn, which is why it's always, if you want to learn things, fail, because you'll learn a whole lot more than if you succeeded. The pocket knife principle. Exactly. You learn that that thing's sharp. If you give a nine-year-old a pocket knife, he's going to discover in short order that that thing is sharp. He's going to cut himself, and he's going to know next time, don't do that. And there's nothing that you can say to change that. Exactly. It's like the rise of empire. <laughs> it goes through a cycle. And protecting him from that isn't going to help him because when he's 25 and he buys his first pocket knife, he's going to cut himself. So let's yeah. get this over with early. But... You mentioned how the lessons that Germany learned from World War II are very different from the lessons Japan learned. And, and yeah, purport to learn. And, and I was privileged to be associated with uh, um, a gal that came from Germany in 1989. And one of the things she pointed out was that a high, for them, high school graduation requirement was to visit a um, concentration camp. Germany as a country has made some pretty significant institutional uh, requirements that are, are really going to make it difficult for that country in particular to revisit um, Nazi Germany. Um, be it the visitation of concentrations camp for young people, banning national socialism. The, the, the Nazi party is illegal in Germany. Um, to the American taste, that's an infringement on um, individual rights uh, that we would frown on. But they took the lessons of the horror of World War II and I would argue codified and internalized that so that it won't happen again. Compared to Japan, um, they uh, accuse of revisionist history. Uh, they have not officially apologized for... Um, a, a lot of their war crimes, no, like uh, comfort women, comfort women, things like that. Uh, the 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 slavery that mm -hmm. that they engaged in with the Chinese, the um, the Koreans, those kinds of things, and and so that's and again, this is not good or bad, right or wrong. This is just looking at different approaches that given countries. Um, and in these, in this case, the, the defeated countries, what they took away from that experience and, and how they are addressing or not addressing or living with. 
and I I would argue as the victors as being uh, one of the allies. This this the United States did not have any war crimes, right? Malarkey. Yeah, exactly. And there was plenty of German surrendering soldiers that weren't allowed to yep. generally wore paratrooper wings or SS symbols. Um, Korean War, Vietnam War, nothing is good and clean about war. I don't care which side you're on. But the court historians don't teach that. We don't talk, yeah, we don't talk about that. And I'm as guilty of it in terms of not knowing um, the, the, the massacre of civilians on a bridge in Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I only learned about that about 10, 15 years ago. And I consider myself a a student of history. Right. Well, one of the lessons unlearned by Japan was, again, what they did in China. They have no idea. Um, I believe it was in the late 80s, a group of Japanese businessmen decided to have a, a bacchanalia in Nanking with you know prostitutes and the whole nine yard they had no idea that in 1937 the japanese army had gone through and pretty much destroyed the place raped all the women killed all bayoneted men all this kind of thing they had no idea the chinese knew all about it Mm -hmm. and they raised a major stink which the, the japanese were you know completely you know dumbstruck by the whole thing like what they didn't learn because they covered that up. They had ignored it. The losers don't ignore these things. If you want to learn about Civil War history, talk to a Southerner. Northerners, mm-hmm. they don't know anything about it. Oh, yeah, Grant, Lee, something like that. Southerner will tell you all about it. I was in Atlanta in 1988 at a, at a fine barbecue, and they're still complaining about the burning of Atlanta, Sherman's March. Uh, it those memories yep. are fresh 150 years on and in fact right now in april of you know 2015 we're at the 150 year anniversary of lee's surrender so you know it's still fresh in their minds 150 years on so glub's basic thesis here though in this discussion is that history needs to be taught as a history of the human race not i mean sure it's good to to focus on this that and the other thing but only after you've had a good broad overview of uh of what constitutes humanity and 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 humankind in our at least three thousand last three or four thousand years of um of existence because again as he says there's some very obvious things that happen over and over and over and over and over that nobody seems to have taken much note of and you know which is ridiculous when you think about it like well how come nobody noticed this before but you know sure have an emphasis on the history of your own country absolutely know where your country came from know the rise and ultimate fall of it but know why that happened don't say you know oh we're declining because they're they're allowing gays in in bars now uh no that's 
that's a, a, a symptom of the fact that you're no longer a hyper-masculine puritanical culture that we were 150 or 200 years ago. Um, allowing women to vote. No, that's part of the... It's part of the cycle. Part of, of the cycle. Absolutely. And it, it doesn't surprise me that that <clears throat> we don't want to look at a, the study of the human experience through this lens because no politician, no parent is going to want to suggest that this paradise is not going to last forever. It's It takes a real hard, cold, pragmatic individual to say, yeah, the, here here's the way, if you're using club, here's the way that it looks as though how things play out, 250-year cycle, based on his criteria, we're here, and I'm pointing at one side of the curve. Right. If it's on the upslope, that's great, because you don't think about that you're going to peak and then come down. If you're on the downward slope, which, reading this in our discussion, I, I would have to say that we're we're going down the downhill on a on a sled yes and you can talk all day long about what it would take to change it can it be changed and all that but you have to at least be enough of a pragmatist to say no this is the way it is the way it is be the physician who says well sorry this is this is how it is gloves reference to uh, a certain point in Baghdad, in the Arab Empire, where women again had all kinds of different positions of power and influence. And it was completely accepted by everybody. But yet 50 years later, only 50 years later, a woman could not go through the streets of Baghdad without a male escort. Things can happen that fast. So, we can celebrate our diversity all we want, give it 50 years, and things will be different. I don't know how, but they will be different. And that's just that's just the way it works. Unless we're the exception. We can hope. I mean, there's always... Rome was the exception in that they had two parts of their empire, two 250-year two, periods. Maybe we will, too. We'll find out. We'll know. We'll we'll know soon enough, or sometime. Yep. So that ought to wrap it up for this week's episode of the History File. So uh, tune in. Boy, that's an old term, isn't it? Tune in. We're old, Gordon. We're old. Okay. So tune in next week for episode ten of the History Files. Until then, I'm Gordon Fry. I'm Dylan Honnold, and we look forward to talking to you again. Good night. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the Psycon Podcast Network. For more episodes, show notes, links, or to leave comments and suggestions, visit us at psycon.net slash THF. That's C-S-I-C-O-N slash THF. We also invite you to please consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash or patreon.com slash badcatshows, 
where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow.